ahead. Just this commute from my house to here about 40 minutes, I listened to the first chapter about three or four times, and then I got to chapter 10 before I reached the church. So I listened to about 17 chapters of the Bible in about 40 minutes. Uh, I listened to the Bible app. You just download the Bible app, and I put it at a 1.5 or double the speed. Just kind of takes out the, the, the breaths in there and just keeps it rolling. So I want to encourage you, every single week, invest into the book of Matthew. Whether it's just reading what I'll be talking about or reading large portions of it, prepare your heart this year to encounter Jesus in ways that you have never encountered him. This is the revelation of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus written by Matthew is the revealing of who Jesus is. All gospels are important and are there for our benefit, but Matthew is the most longest and most extensive, starting from the very beginning as we will today in chapter 1 with his genealogy all the way to the Great Commission at the end. Some of the greatest teachings of Jesus that he's world famous for, you know, like the golden rule, the beatitude. That's found in the book of Matthew. Also, what you'll see in the book of Matthew is continually him having the attributes of God the Son. He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. If I were you, I would mark those special throughout your reading to see the significance of God the Son in the flesh. Also, you'll see Jesus throughout the entire gospel make declarations of heaven and hell, and he'll actually emphasize hell more than he will heaven. Some people get offended by that and think that he's just, you know, not loving them, but he loves them so much he doesn't want them to get there. You'll hear phrases like repent or perish. You'll hear phrases like it's better to cut off arms and, and your limbs and go to heaven without them than to go to hell with them, pluck out eyes, you know. You'll hear about passages of goats and sheep being separated and goats going to hell. This is a serious book. It has a serious message, but I want us to enjoy it and take Take all the nuggies as God gives them to you. And if you like, take a journal for yourself and journal as you go through it, as I'm doing in my own personal study. Let's go to the timeline that I have in the notes just to give you a little idea of Jesus' life as well as when the book of Matthew was written. Here it is on the notes. You can check it on your app or on our website. All of uh, Jesus' life kind of summarized here in, in the book of Matthew, except for the destruction of Jerusalem and all of that. Uh, that, that part right there is what he talked about would happen. But uh, John the Baptist is born right around uh, 6 B.C. Jesus born around 5 B.C. Then he goes to Egypt uh, you know, to flee from what they were trying to do against him. And then he comes to Nazareth around 12. He goes to the temple. Jesus works as a carpenter until he starts his ministry. He starts his ministry at his baptism. And then uh, Matthew becomes a disciple right around the chapter 10 of this book. And then uh, we see that Jesus uh, is crucified resurrected. That's where the, the gospel ends. And then the gospel is actually written in time by Matthew the disciple who was once a tax collector. The, the church flees from Jerusalem because it's going to be destroyed as Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 24. And uh, let's go to our notes. Look at Matthew chapter 1 now. When you want to study more about the Bible, go to gotquestions.org. It's a great site. You can punch in questions that you may have as you study the book. I also have their summary of the book of Matthew here if you want to learn more about the occasion and what Matthew was doing at that time and possibly who he was writing it to. Uh, at this time, people did not put their names in the book if it was not about them. So sometimes atheists will say, well, how do we know it was Matthew? How do we know it was John that wrote these gospels? Even Muslims will use that against us. How we know is by church history. Papias in the early first century tells us that Matthew wrote this. And even if it wasn't Matthew and they falsely ascribed it to him, it still means it's true. We don't know who wrote the book of of Hebrews, but we know it's true. Divine authority does not come by a name. There was also false gospels written in names of apostles around that time that we don't receive just because they have the name of Thomas, Gospel of Thomas. Now, some of you may say, how do we know the difference between the real ones and the fake ones? Well, we just trust what the Roman Catholic Church has to say. That's all we do. We trust the Catholic Church. No, I'm kidding. That's what they'll tell you at the Roman Catholic Church. What we do here is we trust the Holy Spirit. We believe there was a man named Jesus. We believe that the gospels record his life, and then by 
by that, we can see that there is a standard, a ruler, and so it's called the self-attestation of the infallibility of the Scripture. If you want more information about that, study the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. About 40 years ago, a lot of theologians met here in Chicago to explain how we as Protestants, not Catholics, trust the New Testament and how we understand its transmission. Even though people made mistakes in transmission, that doesn't mean that there's a mistake in the Word of God. The mistakes are shown as the ruler goes through the generations. So as we gather the manuscripts, we can see where there's a mistake because the majority texts don't have that mistake. Some people try to say, well, they changed the Bible. You know what's unique about our 5,000 manuscripts? As we have found them all over the world in all kinds of uh, languages, so rather 15,000, but we have 5,000 just in Greek that have been found through centuries throughout. And guess what? When we dig them up in some cave over here or find them over there, the only differences that they have is grammatical. And then that's, like I said, we study and go with the majority text. Can I hear an amen to that? Because if God is God, he can keep his word preserved. Amen. Wouldn't it be hard for God to do that? And then sometimes when I'm arguing with sassy atheists and others, I say, what if just one passage of the Bible is true? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, who uh, so ever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's enough to base your whole entire life on, okay? So we've got enough revelation to go on here. I do believe it's accurate. I do believe Matthew wrote it. I do believe the church fathers were accurate in their, uh, you know, telling us who wrote these books. And then by the time, you, you know, the Gospels, and then by the time you get to the epistles, we know exactly who's writing them. Like Luke is writing the Gospel of Luke because he's also going to write Acts. And then he was a companion of Paul. Paul's writing the epistles. And we know that for sure. So Matthew, Mark, and John are the ones that don't specifically name the names, but we trust them. Matthew is a disciple of Jesus. Mark is recording the, the words of Peter. He was his assistant, also mentioned in the book of Acts. And John is the beloved, the one who was close to Jesus. How many learned something right there? Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. Some of you might think this is the boring part of the Bible, but I hope that I can make it a bit interesting to you as we go through all of the names here. Verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Matthew. You all ready? All right, let's do it. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa, or Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amen, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Take a deep breath. Continue on. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel. Sheatel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahad. Abahad, the father of Elikim. Elikim, the father of Azar. Azar, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Echim. Echim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph. And the husband of Mary, Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to, to, the, to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Can I hear an amen for that? Now, why is that important that they put that here? Why did Matthew do that? Because number one, Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus is not a myth. You would think that after 2,000 years of human history and Jesus probably being the most attested to person in history, that we would have gotten over the Jesus myth stuff. But it's still around with us. Anytime you see somebody put something on the internet that calls Jesus a myth or likened unto Horus and others, you have just met a historical nincompoop. There is nothing like Jesus in any of those myths. Those are actually lies that they're telling to try to find comparisons. It's like comparing a house to a mouse because they sound the same. 
When you study the life of Jesus and all that they claim are comparisons with Horus and Mithras and all of these others, they are actually full-on lies. The great majority, the great majority of all historical scholars, Christians, Jew, non-Christian, those who study antiquity, all agree Jesus existed. Number one, he's not a myth. How do we know that from a passage just like this? Some people will say, well, it's in the Bible. Let me ask you a question. Does it being in the Bible make it wrong? I'm not asking the atheist or the unbeliever yet to ascribe the miracles to him. What I'm just saying is just because the Bible recorded the history and put it all in one book, or the Christians rather, recorded. Uh, recorded the history and put it all in one book, does that mean they should be treated as one wrong error, uh, one, one wrong recollection or one biased recollection? No. If you did a compilation of the American history and four authors wrote it and put it all into one book, would you automatically say, well, all those four authors are just saying the same thing and they must have copied off each other and then, you know, they're wrong. No. What it is is that you have all of this attestations of Jesus' life. The Christians, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, are comparing it to the Old Testament and to the church revelation that they had at that time of Jesus. And then they gathered these books up and put them together in what we now call the New Testament, 27 books. But Matthew stands by itself. Like if all you had was the book of Matthew just standing by itself, it has enough attestation in itself to give us all we need about Jesus. Mark does the same. Luke does the same. John does the same. Now sometimes they like to try to point out, well, there's two demon-possessed people in Mark, uh, in Matthew, and then there's one in Mark. So is that a contradiction? Well, let me ask you something. If you have two, do you have one? Yes. Does every historical account need to be the same? Now, this is where we get into do differences mean contradictions. Just because Matthew wants to emphasize the two and Mark wants to emphasize the one, does that mean they're contradicting each other? When you're sitting at home and you're watching a movie on surround sound and you hear some crackling in the back because they're in the woods and then you hear the people talking in the front, is that a contradiction of the scene? No, it's the same scene. It's just different things are happening. The Gospels are not contradicting each other. They are surrounding round sound complementing each other. But what each one had was a purpose. What is Matthew's purpose? They generally believe that Matthew's purpose was to give a gospel to the Jewish-speaking people of that time. Now, you have to understand, as Matthew is writing chapter 1, Jesus has already ascended to heaven in actual time. Remember, we looked at the time frame. So Matthew, after the fact, is writing down these things. And so the Holy Spirit is going to use him to write out things for the audience that he is writing to, specifically the Jews. What does that genealogy mean to a Jew? Jesus is in the line of Jews. Think about that. He is a historical person. If you were alive at that time, you can go check on his family. Does everybody get that? Can I go check on uh, Thor's family right now? Can I go check on Spider-Man's family? Okay. That's a myth written in my generation, right? A little bit older than me, but you get my point. So it's written at this time. Can I go back and check on Peter Parker? No, but if you were alive during this time, could you go back and check on the cousins, the family, the uncles, the tribes? You could go to them and go, hey, man, were you uh, Jacob? Uh, you, know, you know, Joseph had a father named Jacob. Are you also one of the brothers of Joseph? Was Jacob also your dad? Or was Jacob your uncle? Hey, did Joseph have a son that, that he raised named Jesus? You know, you could go back and do that. Now, one of the key things that people may notice is that Luke has a difference, once it gets to a certain point around David, of a genealogy. And that may be a concern. And that's a good question that we have to ask is, why does Matthew and Luke's genealogies contradict each other when the Jewish people were so methodical about these names? Simple answer. Matthew is recording the genealogy of Joseph, which Jews would want to know from the masculine point of view. Luke's covering the tracks and showing you from Mary's genealogy. So it's just Joseph's genealogies in Matthew. Luke has Mary's genealogy. And why would, that be per why would that be pertinent or important to this conversation? It's because Christians did not believe that Joseph was literally the son of Joseph. Uh, Jesus, rather, was not literally the son of Joseph, but that Joseph was rather the caretaker of Jesus, but that Jesus was preexistent from all of eternity, only having his father in heaven as his father. And when he came to earth, uh, Mary simply provided the virgin body 
body for him to be in, and that body would have needed to have been Jewish by lineage as well. So normally you would have been covered just having your Jewish dad, but since it specifically avoided Joseph's DNA, they had to make time, hence Luke coming after the Gospel of Matthew, backing up Jesus' Jewish genealogy by showing it was Mary that was also a Jew. Does everybody get that? A lot of deep things that we're finding out here. If you want to look more at genealogies, you can just go to the generations things there, or the generation link there, and you can learn more about it. Here's an application I want to make right now to everybody here so we don't get bored just talking about history is uh, what is going to be your godly legacy? What will be said about you if the Lord should tarry 10, 15 years from now? What children will you mother or father that will continue on in the teachings of Jesus? What, what we notice, and I don't know if you caught it, but there's some women mentioned here. Do you know that every single one of the women mentioned here actually come from pagan, non-Jewish backgrounds? It is very telling why Matthew's doing that. Is because while he's giving a gospel to the Jews, showing how Jewish Jesus is, he keeps throwing in there the message of inclusiveness to the nations by showing Rahab, the one that was a part of Jericho, oh yeah, she came into our line too. Oh yeah, Ruth, who was a pagan, yeah, she came into our line too. And making sure that as he sets it up, watch in Matthew chapter 1, with the nations in mind, though Jesus is a Jew, he has the nations in mind. When we get to chapter 28 and the gospel is going to the nations, which, by the way, that's already been commanded, and that's why now Matthew's writing the gospel. He's wanting to make sure they get it. So you could look at the nations are in chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 28. So what kind of influence are you going to make on the nations? Not all of us have to have as many kids as my wife and I do. We have six, and now we're looking into foster care and doing different things with Lydia Home. And uh, I would like to get to a dozen by the time I, I, I call it quits. So six naturally and then six through the foster care. We'll see how far we can get, but it's just a hope and a prayer. Amen. Everybody's got to have hopes and dreams. Okay? That's my hope and dream. You don't have to do that, but you need to be responsible for what God has given you. And so you have to look at yourself, whether you're male or female, as you are playing a role in the kingdom of God. Now notice how fast we went from Abraham all the way to the time of Jesus. What do you think it's going to be like? Because Luke's goes back to Adam, by the way. What do you think it's going to be like in heaven when we tell the spiritual genealogies? We'll literally be able to tell the spiritual genealogies of the entire world. Not only your physical genealogy, so it will be like Edwin was led to the Lord by so-and-so. So-and-so was led to the Lord by such-and-such. Such-and-such was led to the Lord by so-and-so. Wouldn't that be awesome to see the family tree and it all comes back to Jesus and we're all a part of that family tree? Because even more than what we're doing for our earthly family, we need to be impacting the spiritual family. Because my earthly family may turn on God. What if my children turn on God? What if my wife turns on God? and doesn't want to go to heaven. I can't force him to go. And so I will be with my spiritual family longer than my earthly family if they don't love Jesus. So no matter which way you look at the historical account here, generations are important whether you're looking at it spiritually or whether you're looking at it physically. And every single one of us needs to leave a legacy of Jesus culture inside of people. Okay, Jesus culture trumps American culture, trumps all of the things that we've grown up with in the 21st century culture, in the modern age culture. Jesus culture over everything. Amen. Kingdom first. And we're going to hear that in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Okay, let's go now to verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Now, let me just pause here. He said it now twice, uh, three times, rather. He said the, Jesus, the Messiah, in verse 1. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, or referring to Jesus, the Messiah, in verse 16. He alludes to the Messiah in 17, so technically that would be the third time. And then the fourth time in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Who do you think Matthew believes Jesus is? Who do you think he believes he is? Messiah. Messiah. Does anybody know that word in Greek? What is that word? 
Christ. Christ Messiah is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. Jesus, the anointed king of Israel. Okay? But think about this for a moment. Who is he writing to? Jewish people more than likely. What did the Jewish people do to Jesus? They crucified him. So within a few verses, he's reminding them. He's kind of digging it in a little bit. He's the Messiah. Whether y'all believed it or not, he's the Messiah. And I'm going to prove it to you over these 28 chapters. He's the Messiah. But I just want to let you know whether you believe it or not, he's still the Messiah. How many know we still need to have Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah in our minds like that? You know, we'll, we'll talk to the atheist, we'll talk to the Muslim, we'll talk to whatever unbeliever is out there, and we'll try to give them all the evidence we can that they need, but the entire time it's always, we know what we believe. Jesus is the Messiah. I'm starting this off telling you Jesus is the Messiah. Then I'm going to tell you more about how Jesus is the Messiah. Then I'm going to tell you what the Messiah is going to do, you know, and then I'm going to show you how you're going to be judged by that Jesus Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So why does Jesus, think about this, need a unique birth, a virgin birth? No prophet of all human history gets a birth like this. Even the Muslims who say they believe in Jesus as a prophet believe he was born of a virgin, but Muhammad wasn't. And so I love asking them, why did Jesus get a virgin birth? Why? If he was just a prophet like everybody else, why did he need a virgin birth? Even supposedly to you, Muhammad's the greatest prophet, even greater than Jesus. He didn't get a virgin birth. You want to know why that is? You got to go to, Math, uh, you got to, go to John's friend, uh, Matthew's friend, John. Go to John chapter 1, verse 1. John comes after what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they're so similar. John's a very unique gospel. Go to John chapter 1. John kind of goes a little bit further back than the genealogies of Matthew and tells us about Jesus. I think he'll explain to us a little bit why, a little bit more, uh, why Jesus needed a virgin birth. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. Let's go on down to verse 14 of John chapter 1. The word became what? Flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now go to verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and in his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Why do you think Jesus need a virgin birth but Moses didn't need one, Isaiah didn't need one? It's because he's God in the flesh. If God is coming in the flesh, he's coming in perfect flesh. He is the only one that could restart the human race. Some people think that we believe in a man becoming God. That's what Muslims will always try to say in atheists. You believe this man called Jesus became God. No, no, no. We believe God became man. Get it right. We believe God became man. And if I could become a cartoon and be in some movie like Michael Jordan was, or rather work with cartoons in a movie like Mark Michael Jordan, what was that, Spaceball? Not Spaceball. Space Jam. If I could be human and interact with cartoons or, you know, be a voiceover in an actual cartoon, how much more so could God, all infinite in power, come and condescend and become a man? Nothing's impossible for him, and there's no contradiction. Some people think God becoming man is like a circle becoming a square. It's either one or the other. That's not true. Jesus, God in the flesh, took on humanity and never stopped being God. You could put a circle within a square. Now, what's unique about us as Christians is we believe in what's called the hypostatic union and that there was a not a blending, but there was a union of the two. So they never blended, and so he didn't become like a centaur, half God and half man. But the mystery of godliness is great, the Bible says, and that's where we can conclude it at, is that they were unified together. So as one person, he was the God-man. They didn't blend. They didn't cross over. And yet they were each distinct, 100% God, 100% man. That's where I leave the mystery at that point. At that point, I believe philosophy can only take us so far, and the biblical revelation ends at that point. Trust the Bible when it says that he was God in the flesh. But let's go back to Matthew. And this virgin birth causes an issue now with this engaged couple because Joseph is like, I want to know the truth, Mary. How are you pregnant right now? 
how are you pregnant? Now, you want to know something gross about the Mormons? Because you know me, I always got to put out all the different religions when I preach. Mormons believe that Elohim actually came down and had sex with Mary. And that's how she became pregnant. So that's a whole nother perverted story of how people misunderstand the virgin birth. But we believe the Holy Spirit comes upon her and gives her the perfect body for Jesus to dwell upon, uh, dwell in, to dwell upon the earth. So she's pregnant, and Joseph is like, I know we haven't gotten it on yet because he was a good man. Somebody say, a good man will wait until marriage. Amen. So he's a good man. And then notice that the language here, this is unique for us. He says to spare her the shame because he loved her that much. He said, I'll just divorce her quietly. Almost sounds like a contradiction. Well, y'all weren't married. How are you getting a divorce? Because in that culture, engagement required a divorce to break off. They took it that serious. If you want to learn more about dating like a Christian, I got a book in the back. You can get it or you can get it for free online. Uh, the idea that we now take in finding a spouse is so pathetic. It wouldn't even be recognizable compared to the Bible culture. Uh, you know, the parents and family were involved. They weren't quite arranged marriages, though at times they, they would get a little help from them. But the woman and man, they still had to make their own final choice. But here's the big deal is that they had to honor each other. And so let me just make an application here today to all my single folks. You need to honor yourself on behalf of the spouse you're going to marry one day. Don't be giving away your goodies to someone that's not your husband or wife. That belongs to your husband or wife. Give that purity as a gift to them. And then those of us here who are married, if they took engagement that serious, that they weren't supposed to cheat on each other even when they were engaged, how much more so should we not cheat on each other now that we're married? Because that's technically the only biblical uh, reason of divorce that Jesus gives us is for infidelity for adultery. So make sure you take your marriage vows serious. And Matthew, the Bible says that they're to death, do us part. He wanted to spare her because he did not understand what was going on, so he wanted to divorce her. Let's go to verse 20 now. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from who? The Holy Spirit. Now notice that the angel comes to Joseph in a dream to clarify this is unique. Now, were there times that people couldn't get pregnant like Abraham and Sarah couldn't get pregnant and God gives them a special blessing to conceive in their late age? Yes. What is the difference here? Abraham and Sarah had to get it on to have a child. Uh, Joseph and Mary don't get it on. This is a unique seed. Some may say seed from the Holy Spirit. So when the man would generally give the seed, well, we, well, in all cases, the man gives the seed to the egg. That's how you have conception, right? And so that's why we are pro-life here because we believe life begins at conception. Psalm 139 says, you saw me in my mother's womb and you formed me. So at conception, we're being formed, but we're not becoming a me. You become a me at conception, forming comes afterwards. So let me say it again. You get formed in the womb, but become a me at conception. That's why he says, you formed me in my mother's womb. Some people think you need to be formed first to become a me. You become a me at conception. And if I could just blow your mind real quick. Why does your soul, which is incorporeal and in, uh, uh, immaterial, need a big body to encompass anyway? When you die, you're going to be spirit just in heaven. When you come into this earth, your spiritual soul knows no bounds, neither big or small. It can dwell, your soul can dwell in what we would call the little embryo. Are you listening? So sometimes they'll show these little things as an embryo and go, well, it's got to be okay to kill that. And no, it's not. Our spiritual soul can dwell perfectly within that, just like Jesus dwelled perfectly within that. When did Jesus start dwelling in Mary? The moment of conception. When were you a me? At the moment of conception. And so when you're looking at the form of your body to find your personhood, you're missing the whole point of the Bible anyways. Your body was there in the Garden of Eden, literally just as dust, sitting there, a man of dust. It wasn't until God, what? Breathed. God could have breathed into a speck of sand and made that thing a living person if he wanted to. It, the size was not the issue. It was the spirit encompassing what God said the spirit would encompass that made that person a living soul in that body. 
So don't need, you don't need a form to be a me. And then if you look at it in reverse, that means if I start taking away your form, you're no longer a me. I start taking away your arms, you're no longer a me. Because I could make you look very close to something like they're aborting even at a few weeks right now if I started dismembering you. Okay, but you're a me at conception. When did Jesus become the me and Mary at conception? Okay, birth of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph is like, yeah, thanks, angel. I really needed to know that. She will give birth. Uh, let's go back here. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name what? Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, let me just talk about this for a few seconds. When we look at the name Jesus, we have to know where that name came from. More than likely, they spoke Aramaic at this time, which is a little bit of a modernized version of Hebrew. So Hebrew was the classic language of the Jews during Moses' time and all of that. But as they began to be invaded by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and all of that, they adopted a more popular language of the Semitic background, which was called Aramaic. But Aramaic and um, uh, Hebrew would be very similar to like Latin and Spanish. Spanish would be like a modern version of Latin. There would be some similarities there. Does everybody get that? That's a Spanish speaker. You'll see some similarities. So Hebrew would be more like the Latin, and then Aramaic would be more like the modern-day Spanish. Now, people sometimes wonder what would have been his name in Hebrew. His name in Hebrew was Yeshua, which to English directly, Yeshua goes to what? Joshua. So then people ask the question, why aren't we walking around worshiping Joshua, writing songs about I love you, Joshua? Would it be wrong? Absolutely not. The power is not in the pronunciation. The power is in the faith of the person, okay? So whether you're speaking in Spanish or English or going directly from Hebrew to English or now what I'm going to teach you, it's from Hebrew to Greek to English, it doesn't matter. The power is not in the syllables. It's in the person you're putting faith in, the Son of God. Okay, now watch this. If you go back to the Old Testament and study the book of Joshua in the Greek, which was called the Septuagint a few hundred years before Jesus was born, you'll notice that they call Joshua Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. Jesus, when translated then to English directly, gives you Jesus. So some people say it doesn't count unless you speak his name in Hebrew. The Jews had no problem with, all, uh, with translating words into Greek because of the Septuagint. And guess what is the most popularized version of the Bible quoted in the New Testament? It is the Septuagint, not the Hebrew text. When you look at the quotations all throughout the New Testament, they are all quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament. Why? Because that was the most popular version of their time. So number one, we learned that there's no problem with changing names into other languages. There was no problem with that. Number two, whether or not you want to focus on Jesus, Joshua, or Yahshua, the point is, do you know who he is? Who he is is a savior for your sins. Now, you got to be one of his people for him to save you from his sins. Now, notice this. He dies for the whole world, but he only saves his people. Many are called, few are chosen. Everybody gets a chance to be his people, but not everyone does. So even though all debts have been paid, only those get it attributed to their accounts who believe in him. Now, I want to give you some deep things about Joshua before we get into the message. Go to Zechariah. The book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 1. We know there's a popular figure in the Old Testament, Joshua, who marched around the walls of what? Jericho. Okay. That's a great example to look at what, what a biblical character can do, but it's not the best example to know the power of the name Joshua. What you have to do is go to a prophet that's during the time of the Babylonian captivity when they're getting back their land, they're going to start rebuilding the walls, and there's a priest named Joshua, and there are some prophecies said about him and involving him that become quite mysterious if you don't know how to read prophetically. Are you all ready to go deep a little bit? I know Edwin is. Anybody else want to go deep? Okay, put it up there, brother, please. 
Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. And this is not just me here. This is commentators galore. Uh, they put up these things for us to be able to see in the scriptures. Uh, I've learned it from others. Sometimes I might come up with something I just you know, came up with, and I'll be like, this is what God gave me. But I'm generally not that smart and not that, that uh, good with the Old Testament. Look at this passage, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. This is a vision, okay? Zechariah seen a vision. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So there's a battle going on with the Lord over this man named Joshua. Now, we just kind of skip ahead, think father and son. This is a type of father and son. Joshua being like the son, the father, the Lord speaking, is, 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 his, is the Lord there, okay? Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. So now we see that Joshua is going to represent the actual person of Joshua that needs forgiveness of sins. But now then, it's going to jump back. Watch. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. So it's like, Joshua, you're a sinner, so we got to change you up. But then we go back to giving him some priorities that seem a little bit too big for his britches. Let's keep going. Listen, high priest Joshua. Remember high priest there. You and your associates, associates seated before you who are men symbolic. See, that's how I know I can go symbolic here. Are you guys listening? Are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. Woo. See, now it's like, Joshua, you're going to represent this, but I want to tell you you're not this. You need this too, in other words. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. Does everybody see that? Isn't that amazing? So you got to follow the flow here. It starts with Joshua as a priest, and then it goes deep talking about Jesus. And then it goes back to Joshua as the priest, and then it goes back to Jesus, then back to Joshua, and then it concludes with now Joshua worshiping the real Joshua. <laughs> Y'all get that? The, the symbolic Joshua high priest of that time needs to look forward for the Joshua, the ultimate high priest coming in the time ahead. So that's why that name was so particular for the Jewish people is that this Joshua had such a unique prophecy about him and was given all of these different roles that he would play, yet we know they didn't all apply to him. And yet he worships the stone, the one with the seven eyes in front of him, which if we go to Revelation, uh, go back to the passage, please, so I can find the, the, the reference there. Go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. I know we think that's a little gross, you know, these eyes and all these things. But these are just symbolic things to mean, uh, you know, uh, the different attributes of God and the different manifestations of his spirit. So look at Revelation chapter 5 here. Revelation chapter 5 talks about the Lamb of God, and it says here in Revelation chapter 5 verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven what? Seven horns and seven what? Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Isn't that powerful? See, that's why the name Joshua, Jesus, was chosen. Uh, let me show you another place because it talked about a rock there. Let's go back to our passage, and then we'll go to Psalms. Let's go to uh, Psalm chapter 118. 
Psalm chapter 118, verse 22. Look at your neighbor and say, this is all just the introduction. I haven't even got to preaching yet, guys. Can I just tell you the story first, okay? I mean, I haven't even got to the message yet. Um, but I just want to give you some historical stuff and some goodies here. Look at Psalm chapter 118 and tell me if you've heard this before because it's actually quoted in the gospel of Matthew. This is a very important part of the story of Jesus that he's the rock or the stone that the builders rejected. Look at verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become what? The cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So I'll put it all together. Let's go back to the passage on the notes, please. Here it is. He's going to be called Jesus, which Jesus' name in Hebrew means what? Joshua. And what does that mean? Jehovah saves. God saves. What's so unique about that name in the Bible is that Joshua was once a high priest that had a lot of amazing prophecies given to him, and we now see they're being fulfilled. So it's not being called Jesus by accident. This is on purpose to fulfill prophecies, but now it gets even better than that. Go back to the, the reading here. It says, she will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And I can't wait to get into all of those goodies in just a moment. That's actually going to be our message today. He will save people from their sins. But let me finish with the passage. Please scroll up. Verse 22, all this took place. See, all of this. Somebody say all of this. All of this, meaning the prophecies given in Zechariah to the high priest was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him what? Emmanuel. Go to Isaiah 7.14 now. So the bigger picture is here. Get this. If you don't get it in Joshua and Zechariah's example there, you're now supposed to say, God is with me in this person of Jesus. Like, you don't get the stone thing. You don't get the high priest analogy. You miss the branch thing. Okay, let me make it simple. All of this is to tell you God is with you now. Isn't that powerful? God helps us. He keeps it simple. I love that we can go back to the name of Jesus and understand how significant it was in Zechariah, in Psalm, and now even in Revelation. But I like it when it's kept simple. Look at Isaiah chapter 7. Somebody say dual fulfillment. One of the things you have to know about prophecy, thank you, is that it has dual fulfillment. Look at verse 14. Therefore the, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now it then begins to describe what this son will do. And so most people believe at this time, this is probably Isaiah's son, is going to be a sign. And that virgin there just means young maiden. But there's a problem if you take that as the ultimate fulfillment. Even though prophets oftentimes had God in their name. Just think of like the name God being El and then Yah, like hallelujah. You would see Elijah has the name of God in it. Ezekiel, El has the name of God in it, like Emmanuel, there you go. And other names like Isaiah from Yah, okay. So El and Yah are found in a lot of names about God doing things. God listens, God hears, God uplifts, God does all of that. And so this person is going to be born in Isaiah's time, name Emmanuel from a young maiden, but there's something that's greater than that they're supposed to look forward to where a virgin, literally a young maiden who has never had sex before, will give birth. And this time, instead of just saying God is with us in a general sense, when we look at the child, we'll go, God is with us. Do you see the prophecy? That's powerful. See, because prophecy has to mean something to Isaiah too. Everything can't be thousands of years in the future. That's why we believe in dual fulfillment. When we look at it, we see there's an actual fulfillment because it says here he'll be eating curds and honey and he'll do all of these things. And possibly you could stretch that to Jesus. But at some point, just like in the Joshua example, some things don't fit to Jesus. Like in the Joshua example, he's a sinner that needs to be cleansed. We know that doesn't fit to Jesus. Dual fulfillment. Here with this young boy, it looks like he's going to go to the next verse, please scroll over. You'll see that there's some specific things he's going to do. And when he begins to do this, it doesn't necessarily fulfill what Jesus did. But yet, is that the intention? Is only this? No. 
Prophets knew that they would oftentimes have a dual fulfillment. They would look at the time of the prophecy, something happening, but yet that would just be a shadow of what ultimately was coming. So why are the gospel writers, let's just put ourselves in Matthew's uh, position. Go back to the passage, please, on the notes. If you're Matthew and you're making up a story, let's just say the critics are right, and they're pointing towards something that's already been done in Isaiah's day. So let's talk to a Jewish person, right? They're going to say, I believe that happened, but it wasn't Jesus. It was some dude named Emmanuel who walked around the earth and did some good things. Just like we have a person named Emmanuel in this church. We don't worship him. You know, is this a good guy? God is with us. That's all it's supposed to mean. Why would Matthew point to that and say, ha, look over here. In that prophecy, though it was fulfilled in your time and had a, had, had a d- dynamic of fulfillment, there is something greater than that. Why would he do that? Because what Isaiah and the other prophets are prophesying about the Messiah is so unique that all of these bits and pieces and shadows have to come together into one person. Otherwise, there's contradictions. In other words, when you go through Isaiah... That's Isaiah chapter 7. Go to the next two chapters. Go to Isaiah 9. Kind of blows up now. This one dude that we're talking about here uh, that we were saying could possibly be Isaiah's son, eating courage, you know, helping out the people of Israel. We start to realize it just can't be a normal dude. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. Say, start in verse, uh, say, 10. uh, Say, verse 6. And you tell me now if this could apply to Emmanuel, who's your next door neighbor. Isaiah chapter 9 Verse 6, look at what it teaches us. For to us a child is born. We're all cool with that, right? But to us a what is given? A son is given. Now notice how we interpret this. The child, the flesh is born, but the son has always existed. The son comes into the form of a child, so the child is born, but the son is given. That is very key to this passage. Now notice this. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. So the son is not born. He's just given. That means he's pre-existing. And watch. And the government will be on his shoulders. Well, maybe that applies to that kid back in chapter 7. He'll be a governmental leader. Keep going. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, he'll be a good counselor. Mighty God. (laughs) It can't just be this young kid anymore. You see, it's one thing to say God is with us, and I mean that in a general way, like, like your name is Emmanuel. It's another thing to, to say, hey, you are mighty God. Hey, mighty God, how are you doing today? How many know no Jew who had been punished for year after year based on their idolatry is ever going to look at anybody other than God and call them mighty God? So when we're talking about the Messiah, the Messiah is more than just a person. The Messiah is more than just somebody we're going to say, hey, God is with us in a general sense. No, literally, God is with us. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So what comes first, seven or nine? So whatever was said about the person in seven now has to be applied to nine. We just lost that young boy, didn't we? Yeah, he can get the name Emmanuel. He can be a shadow, just like Joshua the high priest was a shadow. But where's the fulfillment of the real Joshua? Yahweh saves. Where's the real fulfillment of Emmanuel, the mighty God? It's in Jesus. Go back to the notes in the passage. You guys still got time for the sermon today? I hope you guys aren't in a hurry. I know I got second service coming, so I'm going to move quickly. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. How many have ever heard of the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary? How many know that's a lie, okay? Verse 25 tells you it's a lie. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name what? Jesus. So if he did not consummate until that, that Jesus was born, what does it mean that he did after what Jesus was born? He consummated that marriage, amen? God didn't ask him to be a perpetual virgin, okay? And so don't just take tradition over the scriptures, and we'll learn later on that Mary has children. 
you'll see that Jesus' brothers and sisters come and try to get him to stop preaching. And as a matter of fact, we know in church history that two of his brothers, not born in the same way, obviously, it's from Joseph and Mary's relationship, so we'd say half-brothers, actually write books of the New Testament. James and Jude are the brothers of Jesus in the New Testament. So we know that by church history. Let's review what we just learned in the first chapter here. Chapter 1, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Hey, if you didn't know, Jesus is the Messiah. By the way, Jesus is the Messiah. He comes through good Jewish lineage. He has a good background. Application to us, believe in Jesus is the Messiah no matter what you face in this culture and be a spiritual parent and a physical parent for God's glory so you can be remembered for years to come and when the kingdom of God comes. Next we learn is that Jesus is born of a virgin because he's coming as God in the flesh. That's why he needs perfect flesh that does not come from the seed of a woman. The seed of the Holy Spirit is the divine nature coming into Mary. He has a purpose for coming in the flesh, not to show off. Not to be a great pompous king His purpose is to save his people from their sins He's going to do that as the suffering servant Keep reading Isaiah, Isaiah 53 He was bruised for our transgressions You know, all of those wonderful scriptures Going to apply to Jesus And he is literally God with us And I am thankful that Joseph and Mary Were obedient to the plan and did it right Can I hear an amen? amen? Amen, look at your neighbor and say Let's preach now Okay, I want to put up a picture of the cross. Would you put up the first cross, please? All of us today need to let Jesus save us from our sins. That is the very purpose why he came, was to save you from your sins. Now, notice the difference. It's not just forgive you from your sins. Because some of you just want to be forgiven so you can do it again, to be forgiven, to do it again, to be forgiven, to do it again. That's not the message. That's a part of the message, but why should we ask for forgiveness in the first place? To be saved from the sins. That means we don't want to commit the sins anymore. So once you become a Christian, does that mean you become sinless? You never sin again. No, but you'll now sin less. Okay, and so let me ask you a question. When you look at this cross, there's only really two ways to see this. Do you see this as your get out of hell free card, or do you see this as your salvation from sins? Because if you look at this cross as a fountain of blood, you can just come and wash your filthy hands on every day to go back out and sin. You miss the purpose of Jesus. Jesus is not here so we continue in sins. He didn't come and die and suffer such a wretched death so that we could continue to be the, the slave of the devil, to be a slave to our sins. He came to save us from our sins. Who here, If and this is Black History Month, okay, so be aware of that on Facebook. Share some goodies about great black leaders in American history and throughout the world. Listen, if you were in the South during the time of slavery and somebody set you free, would you want to go back to that slave master? No, you would be thankful for your emancipation. You would not want to go back. And yet, sadly, Christians lose focus of the cross and stay in their sins. This is the way Christianity is supposed to be. Put up that next slide, please. Here's the way Christianity is supposed to be. We are supposed to start off our journey seeing the cross, maybe, you know, as much as we possibly can. And then as we continue with Jesus, the cross is supposed to get bigger. And our lifestyle of sin is supposed to get smaller. So if you look at these two categories of darkness there, unbelief, sin, and shame, and hurt, kind of are like one way the devil tries to impede our vision of seeing the cross. And then self-justification, I'm not that bad, pride, oh, I fear what you're going to think about me so I can't be real, rebellion, don't get in my business, kind of is on that other side. If I was to make two categories of what impedes Christians' vision of the cross, that would be it. But the Christian journey... It's supposed to be going from glory to glory to glory to glory. Listen to what the Bible says here in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image 
from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So you're supposed to be living and acting and talking more and more like Jesus as you see the cross more and more in your life. But sadly, put up the next slide. This is what a lot of people's Christianity is like. Welcome to the roller coaster of most people's Christianity. You start off with the cross being this big, you're saved. Oh, I love Jesus. All I can do is see Jesus. And then some problems come. And then all of this sin and unbelief just crushes and brings it down to where Jesus becomes so itty-bitty. And your sin becomes so big. The problems of this world, oh, nobody knows. The troubles I see or face, whatever the song goes. Look what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 13 and onward says. It says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God, his word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings of what? Righteousness. Would we all stand up today? My messages are shorter than my introductions. Let's give it up for Jesus. Come on. Come on, give it up for Jesus. Amen. I want to ask our altar workers to come. I want to ask our altar workers to come. Parents, if you have children in the back, you can get them now, please. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to end our message. Go back to the other slide with the, the vision of the cross getting bigger. You can just click it with the side swipe, my brother. How many want this to be their life today? Going from glory to glory to glory. How many believe this is why Jesus died on the cross? Adam and the band, would you come, please? You may say, Pastor, I've got so many issues. It's so hard to see the cross right now. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe Jesus is a good Savior? Do you believe there's anything that Jesus can't save you from? Can Jesus save you from your addictions? Can Jesus save you from your pride? Absolutely. If you're here with us today and you've never accepted Jesus into your life, you could start off right now. And you could go from glory to glory. And you may say, Pastor, well, what happens if we sin as a Christian? Does that mean everything changes? No. When I sin as a Christian, I've been a Christian now for over 20 years, that doesn't make me see less of the cross. Because when I sin, my heart's desire is to really come to the cross and be forgiven. Now, does that mean we keep on sinning, that God's grace can get bigger? No, the Bible says we don't do it that way. We get bigger grace. We get more understanding of grace, not by sinning more, but by seeing Christ more. But here's the thing. I don't live under condemnation of my sin. So you may be saying, Pastor, I mean, I've tried to not sin, and it hasn't worked, and... I'm always on a roller coaster. Well, see, the problem is, is it's what you're trying to do. This Christian life is a life of faith. It's a lifestyle of trust. That's why I put up in here self-justification. Because a lot of people make the excuse, I tried it, but it didn't work, so this must be as good as it gets. See, that's you justifying yourself. But what if you said it like this? Jesus is a perfect Savior even when I'm not, so I'm going to start trusting him more and more and more. And even if I sin, even if I mess up, I'm not going to lose my sight of Jesus. You know what I think will happen? Is you're going to see more Jesus in your life and less sin. Instead of you trying to go the other way, which is like self-help, you know, like, you know, human renovation. Well, I'm just going to change myself with Christianity. Like as if Christianity is a good work religion. The more I do, the more I am. The more I do, the more I am. No, Christianity is not what you do for yourself. Christianity is what you believe Jesus did for you. Why did the disciples go from glory to glory? Because they kept their eyes on Jesus. When did Peter start going like that? When he kept his eyes off Jesus. And so when he put his eye back on Jesus after Pentecost, that's the life of Peter. That's the life of all the righteous people in the Bible. The Bible literally says that the righteous are like the first light of day, shining brighter and brighter and brighter to the full strength of noon. Think about that. It's like the sun rising gets brighter and brighter and brighter. That's Christianity. You may say, I don't always do it. That's right, we don't always do it. But you can always see it. Jesus is my Savior. I believe that. So when you sin today or tomorrow, whenever you do, 
Are you coming to Jesus to just get you out of jail, just to get you out of hell? Or are you coming to Jesus as your Lord and Savior to save, to do what he actually promised he would do, to never do it again? If you do it like this, can I promise you something? You will start to sin less in ways you never thought you would sin less. Your attitude will start changing. The way you think about others will start changing. You'll be kind to enemies, forgiving of those who have hurt you. You'll be patient in the process. Go back to the bad slide, please. I just want you to see it one more time. This is not normal. Just If you click with an arrow, if you just click with an arrow, if you hit the arrow, sir, thank you. This doesn't have to be your Christianity. How many are tired of going up and down, up and down? And this is really the norm. See, what's here, more black or more red? More black. So that becomes the norm, doesn't it? I'm used to sin. I'm used to pride. I'm used to unbelief. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Just go back to the other one, sir. The way it's supposed to be is you're supposed to see more of Jesus as life goes on and less of your mistakes. So here's the way I want to end this service. I want to end this service with if you're a new uh, person to our church and maybe you've never accepted Christ for you to come up, but that may just be a few of you here. You know, we always have more of the regulars than we do the visitors, but specifically for the regulars here, you've been here before, but your life has been like this. Would you please come up today for prayer to make a commitment to Christ, just take this sermon series as your sign to say this sermon series for the next year, 2019, I want to go from glory to glory to glory. I don't want more unbelief. I want more faith in God's promises. I don't want more sin. I want more holiness. I don't want shame. I want confidence. I don't want to be hurt. I want to be healed. I don't want to self-justify. I want to be humble. Come on, somebody, that this is your year. And so when we talk to you, God willing, at the end of this year, you can say, man, I see Jesus in ways I've never seen him before. I've seen Jesus change my life. I've seen Jesus transform my marriage. I've seen Jesus on my job. Jesus in my traffic because he saved me. One last thing before we go. The old timers would say, are you saved? And if somebody says, yeah, I'm saved, then they would say back, what has he saved you from? You're supposed to say something after, oh, he saved me from my hurts. He saved me from my pain. He saved me from my stinking thinking, my busted attitude. He saved me from my unbelief. He saved me from my shame. He saved me from my sins. I am his people. I'm one of his. Let's pray now. Father, thank you today for sending your son. We know the end of the story already. He was crucified, buried, and rose again for us and ascended to heaven and is seated at your right hand right now. He is our Savior. Everybody here today that needs Jesus to be real in your life, would you start to come forward as the band sings? We'll close out formally and officially in just a moment, but I want to let some of you start praying right now as the band sings, and then we'll dismiss. Don't stay in your chair if you know the Lord is convicting you to start a new life with Him, to go from glory to glory. Do it, God, in every person's life. I don't care if they're a leader in this church. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Nobody's judging you, saints. Nobody's judging you. Come on, come on, quickly. Quickly, God is able.